Isaiah is where we are. Please turn there in your Bibles. We are in the book of Isaiah. We left off in chapter 49, which means today we are in chapter 50. If you remember, Isaiah is prophesying. He's speaking. He's the mouthpiece of God. He's speaking to the 8th century, maybe a few years into the 7th century, but that was his prophetic ministry. In those days, the northern kingdom known as Ephraim and Israel, known as, also known as Ephraim, was conquered by Assyria. You remember, the capital city, Samaria, of the northern kingdom was decimated and the people of God taken by the Assyrian army. God warned them over and over through Isaiah and through other prophets like Elijah and Elisha that if they continued their rebellion, he would discipline them. And the Assyrian army not only decimated the northern kingdom, but they continued southward toward Jerusalem, Judah, the southern kingdom. And uh, at the doorstep of Jerusalem, God intervened miraculously and spared Jerusalem. Remember in chapter 37, he spared Jerusalem and the southern kingdom by, as Maxwell Smart would say, that much. And now Isaiah is still prophesying as we turn to 50, chapter 50. And again, He's prophesying concerning many of the things that are going on that's going to go on 150 later, 50 years later in the 6th century. So two audiences, we've been saying this. He's speaking to this 8th century uh, Judeans who actually, if you think about it, they just witnessed the destruction of the northern kingdom because of their rebellion. They just witnessed the sparing of their own lives. And Isaiah is, is prophesying to them. Tell, you know, basically saying, listen, you continue down this road. This is what's going to happen. You too are going to be in the same fate as your brothers and sisters 60 years from now. 150 years from now, there will be a destruction. And God raised up Nebuchadnezzar, we know, to do his bidding. 150 years later in the 6th century, Nebuchadnezzar comes in, the Babylonian king, and marched into Judah and Jerusalem three times and finally destroys it. As God said he would in 586 B.C. Burns the house down, the temple of the Lord, and uh, takes the people of Jerusalem into captivity. Jeremiah says it will be 70 years. That's exactly what happened. God is speaking through Isaiah and letting God's people know. And it's by grace alone. God does not have to share what he's doing and what he will do. But he, by grace, he tells them what's going to happen. He also tells them uh, and reminds them of the promises that he made. And he makes a promise that he will redeem Israel and Judah out of the hands of the Babylonian captivity. He will redeem them. He will keep his promise. And he will send them out of exile back to the promised land, back to Judah, back to Jerusalem. That's exactly what happened. The king of Persia, Cyrus, king of Persia, comes to power, defeats the Babylonian king, and... God puts it on his heart. You can go back now. He releases them. God uses Cyrus, king of Persia, as his servant to send God's people back. And he's actually called the Messiah in chapter 45. So we've been saying Cyrus, the king of Persia, is a type or a foreshadow. He's a servant of the Lord. He's the Messiah. But he's really pointing to the greatest servant of the Lord and the greater Messiah who is Jesus the Christ, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It's hard sometimes if you're studying, especially community group, it's hard sometimes to pinpoint exactly what time of these prophecies, exactly, were they going into exile, were they in exile? But I think as we turn to chapter 50 this morning, I think it's safe to say that Isaiah, again, speaking from the 8th century into the 6th century, uh, he's speaking to them while they're in exile, reminding God's people, in chapter 50, of God's faithfulness. Whether it's times of trials, whether it's times of difficulties that come upon us, or the times when God disciplines us in love. What we need to hear is a word of encouragement. And the word of encouragement comes in hard times, man, as, as a fresh breath of, of warm air right on a spring day. Looking forward to that. And we've been calling the series the gospel according to Isaiah because the fresh air that God has been blowing on God's people and us through Isaiah, is the gospel, the good news of Christ. And over and over again, we have seen Isaiah speak words of, of redemption and restoration and renewal for God's people who are experiencing this, this opposing armies, uh, the Assyrian army, the Babylonian army, and he's speaking to them of restoration. But more importantly, God's pointing to a greater day, a greater redemption from rebellion of sin and death and hell, and that is the gospel. In chapters 1 through 39, we saw the promise of a king, a greater king than Hezekiah, a greater king than Israel could ever produce, and the king's name is Jesus. 
He'll establish an eternal kingdom, one, with, one without sin. will reign in righteousness and justice. In chapters 40 through 55, we said that Jesus is described as the servant of the Lord. We'll learn more about that today. So far, we said that Jesus, who is the ultimate servant of the Lord, uh, we learn from chapter 42, the spirit will be upon him. He'll be gentle, a bruised reed he will not break. He'll open the blind uh, eyes of the blind. He will set captives free, prisoners free. He won't grow faint, it says in chapter 42. He won't be discouraged as he brings justice to the nations. Last week, we saw another description of the servant of the Lord in chapter 49, verse 1, and we saw that he commands the whole earth to come to his feet to pay attention to what he has to say. He's called, he was called, they say, it says in chapter 49, from the Father before the foundations of the world. He, he will be the prophet par excellence. He will, be the, he will have a prophetic ministry. He will glorify God. He'll restore not only the Israelites, but it says in chapter 49, verses 1 through 6, he will be a light to the nations. He's talking about the servant, the servant, Christ himself. All this points to the person and the work of Christ, the ultimate servant of the Lord. And one of the things we saw last week, if you have your Bibles open in chapter 49, and we see it today too, and kind of 49 rolls into 50 pretty smoothly, is that Isaiah is going to speak to God's people who are feeling abandoned. Remember we saw that last week. Chapter 49, verse 14. Uh, yeah, verse 14. But Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. My God has uh, uh, forgotten me. Last week we said that God responded to their forsakenness or their sense of forsakenness by telling them, like, like most nursing mothers who care for the newborn, he will not forget them, verse 15. He's engraved them, verse 15, verse 16, excuse me, on the palm of his hands. They are continually before him. It means his presence is always with them. Chapter 15 opens up, as you've got your Bibles open, with another response of the feeling of rejection feeling of, uh, of, of, of rejection, and, and we'll see also, not only 51 through 3, uh, dealing with rejection, but we'll see the fourth, excuse me, that's not right, we'll see the third of four servant passages. We already saw two, chapter 42, chapter 49, and we'll see another servant of the Lord passage, I don't want to lose y'all in this, in chapter 50, okay? So this is what we're going to do. Verses 1 through 3, we'll see the Israelites' rebellion and God's really response, his desire to save his people. They're not forsaken, even in their rebellion. Number two, the servant's obedience. We'll see the servant, another servant's song, another servant passage pointing to the servant of the Lord who is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Third, which I put two there, it should be number three, but that's okay. The fearful response. We'll see this response to the obedience, to the Israel's rebellion, Jesus' obedience, and what is our response. So that's what we're looking at this morning. So turn your Bibles to chapter 50. Let me read the first couple of verses, and we'll jump right in. Chapter 50 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 3, reading from the ESV, the infallible authoritative word from God. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, there was no man? Why, when I called, there was no one to answer? Is my hand shortened that it cannot save or cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness. I make sackcloth their covering. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. First three verses. Again, remember, God's people in a foreign land in exile. They, they've been uprooted from all that's familiar, businesses, homes, family. It's going on for 70 years. Do you think there were times during those 70 years that some of the people in captivity wondered or questioned, is God good? Maybe even whether God has completely and permanently rejected us. Maybe he just doesn't care anymore. Have you ever thought that way? Have you ever felt that way in a, in a difficult and arduous time and difficult times in your life? Maybe God forgot us. Maybe God doesn't care anymore. Maybe years and years of crying out to the Lord, 
over, over a rebellious child, a, a, a sense of aloneness because of a, a forsaken or abandoned family member, spouse. Decades of unresolved illness and pain. God. The list can go on. Maybe have your own. Many things and many trials come to us because we live in a broken, fallen world. Just read Genesis 3. And if you're honest, and if we're honest, sometimes, don't raise your hand. We bring hardship upon ourselves. Bad choices, bad decisions, wrong turns. But even with that, if you're here this morning, you're a child of God through the gospel. You have been, you have been bought with the precious blood of Christ. You will never be forsaken. You will never be abandoned. You will never be ultimately, finally rejected, ever. No matter how you got to where you are, or the amount of pain and difficulties and hardship you face, God is faithful even in the midst of our hard-headedness and sin. And we see here that God first confronts the Israelites with this sense of rejection by asking for the certificate of divorce. Israel, excuse me, Isaiah has already used imagery of, of, of a bride in chapter 49 and, and a bride who is bereaved and exiled, who later has this blessing of, of children, bride, wife, children. And the question is asked here is really a rhetorical one because the answer is they don't have one. That's the point. In other words, if God has forsaken and forgotten his covenantal wife, Israel, show me the certificate of divorce, Isaiah says. Well, God says through Isaiah, uh, you know, you need that certificate according to Deuteronomy 24, practice of giving this written document, this letter of cutting off that the husband must give to his wife to send her away as he divorces her. Where is it? I mean, one simple way to prove that God has not rejected his people, people of Judah, is to point to the lack of this divorce document. That's the point. No document, only one conclusion. God has not abandoned it. From his point, God's relationship with his people has not ended. Not only has God not divorced Zion, not divorced Judah, but he has also, look what it says, not sold their children to creditors. Which of my creditors to whom I've sold you? Right? Now, in antiquity, a man who was unable to pay a debt and totally couldn't do it, his creditors might take that person, either him, his wife, and his children as a debt payment. Now, we know that God, of course, has no creditors, right? He doesn't owe anyone anything. This hypothetical question that God sold his people to a creditor for some debt drives home the same point he was making. Can anyone of you identify God's debtor? Who does he owe? What does he owe? How does he owe it? Anyone? Crickets, right? The answer is no. Isaiah goes on to say, Behold, for your iniquities you were sold. For your transgressions your mother was sent away. What he's saying is not that God divorced, rejected his people, but that their bondage into slavery, into Babylon, into the exile, was their own sin. Calling them out on their own transgression and rebellion. It didn't come through a divorce document. It didn't come because God chose to sell his children or couldn't pay a debt and sold them to the creditors. That's not what happened. This this situation, terrible situation they find themselves in, is the result of their own doing. In fact, in verse 2, he asks two penetrating questions that get really to the heart of the problem. He's trying to awaken, trying to shake his audience to, to reflect more deeply on the real reason that they're having these trials and difficulties. Why, he says, when I came, was there no man? No one responded. Why, when I called, there was no one to answer? Don't attribute your exile and your discipline to a lack of that I love you and I care for you and why I'm doing what I'm doing. John, first, John 1 says he came to his own, but they received him not. They would not listen as God spoke through Isaiah. He called on to them and no one answered. No one responded. And blind and deaf, they wandered on their own way into transgression. They didn't heed the word of the Lord. They didn't hear the warnings of God. Why, God asked, was it that you thought my arm is too short? See that? Was it too short to deliver them to be? 
chapter, uh, verse 2, second part, is my hand shortened that it, it cannot redeem? Is that, if that's the case, then you all don't understand who I am. You don't understand who God is, the true nature of God. Have they not learned that God is the Savior, the Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob? Chapter 49, verse 26. Do, do, do you see what, what's going on here? Do you see what God's trying to do? He's trying to get them, maybe you here this morning, to take responsibility for their rebellion and their sin. He's reminding them that he's always been ready, waiting to redeem them to work on their behalf, but they were not willing to come to God in order to restore their relationship as if God's arm was too short to save and he was too weak to deliver them. Maybe that's where some of you are this morning. We're quick to blame others for our sin. You will not acknowledge God's call to turn and repent of sin. Or maybe you think it's too late, you've gone too far. Throw up your hands, you're, just, you're, you're disgusted, I, I, I'm too far gone, I'm in too deep, I'm done. Family, that's not the voice of God, that's the voice of the enemy. Or maybe it's a voice of the old tapes playing in your head from the past. Negative tapes over and over in your head. If you're a Christ follower this morning, God will never abandon you. He will continually pursue you in love with a deeper, hoping for and, and pursuing a deeper relationship with you. His arms are long to save. His power mighty enough to deliver you from your rebellion. But it can only be effectual if you turn from your sin. So this passage is first and foremost for the family of God because believers, followers of Christ, blood-bought children of God are called also to listen to the voice of God and repent, to acknowledge and repent of sin. That's what Christians do. Matt Chandler in his book, really good book, The Explicit Gospel, said this. The marker, the marker, play a mark, the marker of those who understand the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. When they stumble and fall, when they screw up, no one's ever screwed up, right? When they screw up, they run to God and not from God because they clearly understand that their acceptance before God is not predicated upon their behavior, but on the righteous life of Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death, end quote. That's the gospel. But if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of Christ. You too must listen to the voice of God to turn, acknowledge, sin, repent, and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. His hand is not too short to redeem. His power not too weak that it cannot save you if you're here this morning. He not only loves you, but he sent Jesus to die on your behalf and in your place. Jesus lived that perfect life you could never live and died the death that you and I deserve and his substitutionary death on the cross paid for our sins. He bore the wrath we deserve for our sin. And God, the Son, satisfies the demands of the holiness of God. The rest of verses 2 and 3 really points to that power of God, the reality of God's power. Isaiah bring home the point by illustrating this unlimited power by using an expression he used before. He says, behold, by my rebuke. Talking about God's control. I mean, he just, you know, you saw that in, in, in one of the gospels. Jesus just rebuked the, the sea. He rebuked it. My, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Isaiah, I believe, has in the back of his mind, he's pointing to the exodus in this passage being led out of Egypt in the Exodus, the darkening of the sky, Exodus 10, the striking of the sea, the stinking of the fish, Exodus 7. I think it's in the backdrop, but I think what Isaiah, uh, what God wants to show us through Isaiah is something even greater than the Exodus. Well, not greater than the Exodus, but that God is all-powerful seen in the Exodus. God has the power that neither the sea nor the sky can withstand him. It doesn't matter how much water is in the ocean or how bright the heavens are at new day. God can dry up the sea and God can darken the sky. I clothe the heavens, verse 3. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make 
sackcloth their covering. What does he mean by that? He's talking about mourning. Sackcloth. Heaven is in mourning because of sin and the unbelief of God's people and their rebellion. It was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the, what they call, who they call the Prince of Preachers, who took this passage and recognized the truth of the gospel that's seen in this passage. And he wrote this about this, this passage. He said, Covering the heavens with sackcloth was performed by our Lord Jesus. Even when he was in his death agony, we read in Scripture that at high noon the sun was veiled. There was darkness over all the land for three black hours. Wonder of wonders, he who hung bleeding there had wrought that mighty marvel that what took place. The sun had looked upon him the son, S-U-N, had looked upon him hanging on the cross and as if in horror had covered its face the tears of Jesus quenched the light of the sun, end quote. God can do what he calls, God can do what he says he will do. God will accomplish all that he has set out to do. He does not lack in his ability to hear his people, to save his people, to redeem his people. Why, therefore, do we doubt him? All this is meant to comfort God's people. The kindness of God, the Bible says in Romans, leads us to repentance. And although your circumstances, my circumstances, may be difficult, or even they may seem hopeless at times, there's a reason to put our hope, our trust in the Lord. Now, as I said, if we go back to chapter 49, really, um, that talks about the abandonment and God's promises uh, uh, and, and God's compassion uh, and his, um, not only compassion, but his comfort to his people. And, and it's just verse, uh, chapter 49, verse 13, sing for the Lord, exalt all the heavens, for the Lord has comforted his people, the Lord has compassion on his people. What I want to do is, as we go to this next point is I just want you to just listen for a moment. All that God is saying to his people who feel rejected, who, who feel that they're in too deep. Okay, just listen. Number one, this is so you can rest in him. He's faithful. Number one, God will never forget his children, just like a nursing mom, 4915. Number two, God cannot forget his people. They are permanently engraved in his hand, 4916. God has not forgotten his people and will bring back a multitude to the land of Jerusalem, 4916. Foreign nations will return God's children, they will bow in respect to them. Chapter 49, verse 22. God will fight and defeat our oppressors and everyone on the earth will acknowledge who God is, the Redeemer, the Savior, the Mighty One of Jacob. Chapter 49, verse 24 and 26. God has not divorced his people, but has the sovereign power to rescue and redeem them through troubling times. Chapter 51 through 3. And finally, God, the Creator, has omnipotent power over all the earth and will keep his promises. Family, that alone, such promises should give us hope to the hopeless, cause the trouble to realize that God's compassion is still obtainable and encourage, encourage the discouraged because God will do what he said he will do. He will redeem, he will rescue his people. So let me ask you, should we feel rejected should we feel there is no hope? No. Why do we hang on to our sin and make excuses when God is for us and not against us? Family, let it go. Give it over to the Lord. The enemy wants us to lose hope. The old tapes that say, look, I'll never change. It'll never get better. What's the use? God says, come to me. My arm is long to save my power will deliver you. My hand is not too short to redeem. My power is not too weak to deliver. Come to me. In Israel rebellion, we see God's desire to save and rescue his people. Second, we see the obedience of the son. Look at chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me. Now notice the change. Okay, notice the change. In verse 1, it is the Lord Thus says the Lord, now in chapter, uh, now in verse 4, the Lord God has given me. There's a change. This is Jesus speaking. It's the servant of the Lord. Well, hold on. I'll show you more. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught. 
that I may know how to sustain with the word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened, look, my ear. And I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near, the Father. Who will contend with me, Jesus speaking? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me, servant, who will will declare me guilty. He answers no one. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So you see, immediately after uh, following God's desire and power delivers people from their iniquities and rebellion, the servant of the Lord is, is brought in again and he speaks again. And although the word servant is not in that passage, if you notice, uh, verses 4 through 9, but the language and the context fits him well. It's a good description of the servant of the Lord. But just look down at verse 10 really quick with me. Whom among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of the servant? So we see the word servant there in verse 10. The servant of the Lord. And the contrast can't be you know, any more stark than it is. Israel's failure and their rebellion against God caused shame and disgrace, ultimately you know, leading them into exile. Temple being burned down with a place where God dwells with his people. And then you have the contrast of the servant of the Lord who is obedient, not rebellious. Not only does he obey the word, but his mission is centered on the proclamation we saw of the word. Now, there's something, if you, if you write in your Bible, circle verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, and verse 9, all have the same Hebrew words, Lord God, Lord God, verse 4, the Lord God, verse Five, the Lord God, verse 7, but the Lord God, verse 9, behold, the Lord God. Very interesting. Isaiah used it, but only uses it here in any of the four servant songs or the passages of the servant. He uses the word Lord God four times on purpose, I believe. The word Lord, if you, if you have your Bibles, if you, if you know anything about um, your, your, your Old Testament, it's a lowercase O-R-D, if you notice, L-O-R-D, lowercase. If it's an uppercase, it is a translation of the word Yahweh, which we call Yahweh, but the, uh, I won't get into there. But anyway, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord Yahweh. This one is a lowercase because it's not Yahweh, it's Adonai. The word God in this text really should be translated Lord, capital, because it is Yahweh. So you have Adonai, Yahweh. Say, well, what does that matter? It actually matters. Because Adonai means, and put them together means, I think, I think Isaiah's trying to say something. Adonai, majesty, authority, master, sovereignty. Yahweh is God's personal covenant name. His personal and covenant name. And putting them together, Young says, according to commentary, lends a tone of majesty and impressiveness to the servant's word. In other words, a servant is speaking about a relationship he has with the Lord God. This character of who he is, the the servant of the Lord, will see his character, but also um, what a true disciple of the Lord looks like. As Jesus here, look with me, he says, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. The word taught is where we get our word disciples. What Jesus is saying is the Lord God, the Adonai, the master, the, the sovereign one, in covenant relationship uh, with me, there is this response, this obedience response of Jesus to submit to the Father in his relationship. The Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. The same God who clothed the heavens in blackness equipped this servant for the task by giving him a ready tongue. Again, the word is disciple. He is well informed. He's been given the word. And the word, not only is he equipped with the word of God, he's also what? He is persuasive in his word. To use his tongue compassionately. Look what it says. That I may know how to sustain with the sword, excuse me, with the word, him who is weary. 
there's this relationship with the Father and the Son. He's listening to the Word, and he's speaking the Word, and he's giving comfort to the weary. Hebrews chapter 5 says that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. Do you know that? And Isaiah is, 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 is picturing for us the servant who is a well-taught disciple, a learned person who has given himself totally and, and devotedly to the Word. He's the Word who became flesh. And we see how this prophetic ministry of Jesus is bringing this Word to the weary. That's what he says. Him who is weary. We go, I, I could be here for six months talking about the kind, compassionate words of Jesus. But let me just bring up one that just popped into my head when I was studying, which I think is just a beautiful story. John chapter 11, two women at a graveside of their brother. His name is Lazarus. Mary and Martha had earlier sent the message to Jesus, telling him, look, the one whom you love is sick, come to him. Jesus waits purposely an extra day until he's dead. And then Jesus shows up on the scene with a, a beautiful and compassionate and prophetic word. He takes these two women, I have time to look at it today. You can look at it, John 11. From their grief and their brokenness and despair, and he lifts them up so they have a greater faith in who he is. Not only that, but he comforts their soul. It's beautiful. We studied here, since I've been here, the gospel according to Mark and the gospel according to John. One of the things that has struck me, and it shouldn't be a surprise, but it, it just, it's just a wonder at the end of the day, when we're done, is how perfect, beautiful, and timely was the words of Jesus as he ministered to others. Every single person. It shouldn't be a surprise, I know. His call to those suffering under sin's crushing yoke, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Whether it's a word to a woman of a bleeding disorder or a synagogue ruler or even to his own mother as he hung on the cross, his words were perfect and flawless and compassionate and fully beneficial. Jesus can sustain, can sustain us with the word if you're weary today. Weary with sin, weary with life. Do you trust that word? Are you, are you reading the scripture? Are you running to the word of God for your comfort? Do, do, do you hear the compassionate and beautiful word of God as you live as a disciple of Christ? Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Every morning, God awakens the servant's ear so that he may obediently hear what the Father's will is. A true disciple, a learned one, and this references to, to a willing, it's not that God wakes up Jesus, it's this is his willing and complete, uh, his willingness and his complete obedience to the Father, the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus said that he only speaks and does what the Father told him to say and what the Father told him to do. In fact, Jesus said to his disciples after the conversation with the Samaritan woman in John 4, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. In verse 5, we see the servant's behavior. Again, in contrast, Israel paid attention, did not pay attention, Jesus pays attention. Israel did not obey, Jesus obeyed perfectly, listened. His ears were open, their ears were shut. Israel rebelled, but the servant of the Lord did not rebel. He did not turn backwards. I mean, there's not even a hesitancy, a moment of hesitancy that Jesus offered at all to listen, to learn, and to obey what the Father commands. Not, 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 he didn't turn his back. During Jesus' ministry, he challenged his enemies, his friends, and his family. Listen, if I've sinned, show me. Who would say that? A poor wife would say, get the pad out. Get an extra pencil sharpener. Right? They couldn't do it. Now, you may be able to hide your flaws from your enemies because you may not talk to them that much. But your own family? It's amazing. That's why Isaiah says in verse 8, who will contend? Who's going to attack me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come to me. Right? 
Let him come to me. Who's my adversary? Let him come to me. Who will declare me guilty, verse 9? Who's going to be it? No one. You know, your mom may worship your you know, feet, the, your, the road you walk on, but your siblings aren't going to. I know my brothers and sisters would be more than happy to point out my failures. I'll tell you that right now. And I don't blame them. I don't see that in a bad way, right? In an astonishing way, we see in verse 6, Isaiah speaks of Jesus turning his back. Not as a means of disobeying the Father, as earlier, but in love to those who cause him pain and disgrace. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out my beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. At one level, that's what happens to all the prophets of old. Not all, but a lot of them. Calvin says, whoever faithfully administers the word will be exposed to a contest with the world. They won't like it. Prophets are commissioned not to make people feel good, mostly, but to call them from their sin. But this incredible language really does just take us to John and Matthew. Matthew 26 and John 19 are the physical sufferings of Jesus. Notice what the servant doesn't say. He doesn't say, I was taken hostage against my will. I was beaten up. No, he states that he himself gave his back to those who struck him. He voluntarily, offering himself up, yielded himself to the flogging that took place before the crucifixion. He gave his back to those who struck him. He gave his cheeks to those who would rip his beard out of his face. He walked right into the opposition with his eyes wide open. And after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter takes out the sword, if you know the story, and and cuts off the ear of the servant. Again, I believe he was trying to cut off his head, but he got his ear. No one goes for an ear. Jesus says to him, put your sword back, put it back. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think, he says, that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In other words, we could smoke everyone on the spot in the whole world right now if I want to. Why would Jesus do that? In obedience to the Father. How could he do that? Look at verses 7 through 9. Jesus received all the power and help. Why? He got all the help he needs in his obedient life. And I use the word obedient life purposely. When he set his face like a flint. See what that says? He set his face like a flint. He was devoted to the purposes of the will, and the word of God. And God helped him. God strengthened him. He, it says that he will be vindicated. He will not allow to be put into disgrace or about be ultimately disgraced. In Luke chapter 9, it says, when the days drew near for Jesus to be received up, in other words, to die and to rise, it says that he set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. He knew what his purpose was. He knew what he had to do, what he came to do, what he voluntarily went to do, and that is to go to the cross. That was his mission. And the Bible says that God vindicated him, judged him rightly as righteous and good. 1 Peter 2.22, he, Jesus, committed no sin. We just talked about that. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten. Remember, I could said lesions. But continued to what? Entrust himself to the Father who judges justly. The servant counted on the help of God as he followed in obedience to the Father's will. He knew he had confidence in God, the Father, He knows God intimately. He knew that God was near. Jesus knew the Father would vindicate him for being faithful to his calling and that emboldened the servant, I believe, to remain committed to the Lord's will. He's confident. There's nobody who's gonna, there's there's no attorney, no prosecuting attorney would ever even come close to having a case of pointing out guilt in the Son of God, verse nine. What's so interesting, and just, just stay, let's leave here just for a minute. 
He who pronounced the servant just, behold, the Lord God helps me, who will declare me guilty. In other words, no one. He's, 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 he is being pronounced just or vindicated or righteous by the judge. And the judge is God the Father himself, who is pure, without sin. There is no darkness. So he knows righteousness when he sees one. Now, I want you to mark this. We're going to go back to this in two weeks. The judge, the Father, the Holy One of Israel, declared the servant of the Lord Without guilt, he's vindicated, just, and righteous. He's the servant. But notice it doesn't say because he's forgiven. He pronounces, the judge pronounces divine judgment. He's fully vindicated, declared righteous because of the servant. And what the servant has done, very important. The servant has his own inherent, intrinsic righteousness. He alone was completely obedient and therefore vindicated and therefore righteous. Just. If the servant of the Lord suffered, was deserved because of his sin as Israel was, his suffering could not be in the place of others. Does that make sense? It couldn't be on behalf of others because you would suffer for your own rebellion. But Jesus suffers and he's obedient and just and therefore Jesus' suffering can be in the place of others. Mark that. We're going to get back to that in chapter 52 and 53. Verse 11 to close this section. We'll go right to verse 12. Listen, those who dare to come against the servant of the Lord, they'll be frail and worn out. Like it's not going to work. Moths will come. They, they, they will inevitably just waste away. Their clothes, their lives will become thinner and thinner, holes until there are no more. Verse 11, uh, the end of verse 9. So you have the Israel's rebellion. You have the servant's obedience. And now finally, look at with me these last two verses and we'll close. This is clearly now a response. So this is a response for the children of God. Response for you, a response for me. Notice how there are two characteristics that it begins with. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of the servants? In other words, they go together. If you fear the Lord, you're obeying his voice. That's what he's saying. And the kind of fear that is spoken about here is not the kind of fear that is hopeless, this terror of hopeless terror of an unbeliever who stands in opposition to God. There should be terror and fear, that kind of fear. That fear has to do with wrath. That kind of fear and opposition to God has to do with wrath and judgment and destruction and eternal separation from God. The fear that Isaiah is talking about here in verse 10 is for those who are in a right relationship with God by faith. Family, there's a difference. That kind of fear by faith is what the Bible says in Proverbs and uh, Psalms. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom. It is the one who is reverently in awe before the Lord. Godly fear manifests itself. Now listen carefully. Godly fear will manifest itself in obedience to God's commands. Remember, two kinds of fears, right? Terror and, and, and awe. Both are captivating. One captivates us because we're in the presence of something that can harm us. That's the terror. The other one captivates us because we're in the presence of someone of honor and awe and love and, and respect. There's a sense of awe and reverence in the presence of the Lord. The fear of the Lord then is the fear that includes reverence, it includes majesty, it includes wonder, a healthy respect and obedience to God. Who he is, all that he is, all that he's done, particularly in the gospel. That's why Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord... Listen to this, Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, if you were going to hold me accountable for my sin, who can stand? That's terror. Because you can't. But he goes on, verse 4. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Interesting. Where there is forgiveness, there is an awe and wonder because of the kindness of God. Family, here's the deal. In the gospel, we know that in spite of our sins and flaws, God does not condemn us. God's not going to hurt us. The Bible says in Romans 8 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is forgiveness. 
Because of the gospel, God knows and loves us. He delights in us because of Jesus. And then in turn, we love him in response. We delight in him. We honor him. We respect him. We live in awe of him. And we obey him. We don't obey to be loved. We obey because we are loved. It's not being afraid he's going to beat you or condemn you. It's experiencing his love and his mercy and his kindness and his grace. And the more we experience, the more we live in respect and honor and fear and obey his word. That's the fear of the Lord. Second, lastly, notice what it says here. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Notice what he, notice God is not saying, if you walk in darkness and have no light, I will be your light. That's not what he's saying. Jesus said in John 8, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Two separate circumstances. John 8, Isaiah 50. In Isaiah 50, it's the courageous, hard but difficult path of obedience to the Lord when you're walking in darkness in the, in the things of this world, the brokenness of the world, the hurt of this world, disappointments of this world. In John 8, he's talking about the rejection of God. His face turned away from you in darkness. Eternal death and damnation in darkness. Two different circumstances. Here God's talking about the one who is walking in the darkness of, of injustice and humiliation and abuse. Like the servants must... must not forget or forego their reliance upon God. Those who fear the Lord and obey his voice are walking in, in captivity and exile. Like the servant himself who was subject to affliction, they must follow the Lord through this and listen and look to him. In the world we'll have tribulation. The servant has overcome tribulation. And the only recourse is to trust in, to rely upon who God has revealed himself to be, to lean, to support on God. He'll never fail them. Trust in the name, the character of God. Lean on the Lord. Trust in the Lord. The prophet is saying, listen, when you're in darkness, don't for- listen, God has not you, forgotten you. God has not forsaken you. When you walk in a dark situation, there's evidence of God all around. But no matter what happens, trust the Lord in the darkness. Family, trust the Lord in the darkness. Be a servant of the Lord like Jesus, a a, a disciple, a learner, and trust the Lord in the darkness. That's the the challenge for us. When there's no visible path forward, darkness all around us, everything seems to be closing in. What should we do? We stand on the revealed will and word of God One step at a time, we announce to ourselves over and over the gospel, the promises of God's unfailing love, relying upon his promises, relying upon the truth of his word, placing our situations into his hand and and continuing in confidence that God is willing and able to deal with our issues, our problems, our circumstances. He is enough. In the last verse in 11, interesting verse, Behold, all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourself with burning torches. Look at the last verse. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Hmm. Such persons who like their own light will lie down in torment. They're not obeying the word. They're, they're, they're not fearing the Lord. They're attempting to create their own light and get their own way out of darkness. Such person will be devoured by the light. So here's my final thought and my final question. Will you trust yourself or will you trust God? Will you lean on your own understanding or will you lean on the understanding and trust in God's word? Will you go ahead and light your own light, your own torch, be your own God and your own savior, in the end lie down in torment or fear the Lord, obey the Lord, trust the Lord and rely upon the Lord? And, and, and if you choose to light your own light, listen, it's just you. It's your imagination, the God of your own mind. And what you're really trying to do is just make it through life. You're just trying to make it through life and, and, and to find purpose and, and, and a place and a meaning and value. It's just self-justification in your self-light. God would say to you today, trust and rely upon him, on Christ's righteousness, imputed to you by faith, which enables us by the Spirit to obey. We become disciples of Christ 
and our ears are open, we obey his word, not to be loved or justified, but because we are loved and we are justified. Now we're going to respond in this song. The band can come up. And let me say this last thing as they get ready. Now listen carefully. Don't lose me here. We have no righteousness of our own. No light to light. But by faith the righteousness of Christ will be imputed to you. The terror of condemnation is dismissed, is removed, is replaced by forgiveness that leads to an obedience and awe of God because of all who he is and all that he has done. That's the gospel. We don't obey our way into a relationship. We're in a relationship and our response of God's love and the grace and the mercy of God is to walk in obedience to him. Man of sorrows. We're going to sing. Guilty vile. Helpless me. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. Let's stand together as we pray. Father, each and every one of us have to acknowledge in our own, our own sin. We can't blame others. We can't look to others. We have to confess and acknowledge our own sin. But God, we're so thankful that when we do, you are there. Your arm is long to save. Your power is mighty to deliver. You will rescue and redeem. You will forgive sinners we just need to come to you. We thank you for the perfect, perfect, spotless lamb of God who gave his life for us, who died in our place, who took the punishment we deserve upon himself and now offers forgiveness to all those who call upon him. And believers, if you're here and you're a follower of Christ, holding on to sin, let it go. If you've never trusted Christ, Christ is calling you to acknowledge your sin, repent and believe. And as we sing, Lord, we pray, Father, that this song will not just be words on a screen, singing to the walls or the ceiling, Lord, but this song will be sung to an audience of one that's you. And we'd recognize how gracious and good and merciful you are to forgive vile sinners like us. May we worship you today, continue to worship you, I should say, in spirit and truth. Amen.